Welcome to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal, showcasing stories from outstanding business people by BDO Canada. My name is Dan Delmar, along with Mike Newton of BDO. Hey, Mike. Hey, Dan. How are you? Excellent. How are you? Good, thank you. I'm really excited for the show today. We're going to be talking falafel with someone who is very popular among the uh, CJD family because uh, Nilufar, uh, the restaurant, used to be right around the corner from our old uh, studios on Fort Street. And that's how I got to know Nilufar Al-Shabaji, who, with her parents, have built up this successful uh, used to be a restaurant, uh, now a catering business and grocery brand. And Nilufar always committed to very, very low prices and helping those in need. She's really quite an inspirational person. She is. I mean, you, you listen to her talk, you, you wouldn't know she was actually in business. I mean, th th this is a woman whose uh, heart uh, she wears on her sleeve for the community, for the people around, for uh, homeless and, and those that, you know, are, are underfed. Uh, it, it's, it's fascinating to listen to, you know, the passion that she has for food, but it's the passion that she also has for humanity. And, uh, you know, we go, we go through an awful lot of things on this show. We talk about a lot of, uh, you know, capitalist type environments, but uh, this certainly is, uh, uh, you know, one you don't want to miss. Uh, for, for some of us, I think, uh, could, could end up being a little bit of a tearjerker listening to her. I have to say the conversation was really incredible. Um, we should mention we do pre-tape these conversations. We like to speak to entrepreneurs in their business. So during the week in their environment, we find that to be really uh, useful. And uh, Nilufar was kind of <laughs> dealing with stuff on the go. And uh, her, her Falafel It Forward program that she implemented when they had the Shaughnessy Village restaurant was, I think, really inspirational. And she would just give away falafels to those, um, to those in need. Uh, and and a, a really... Interesting example, uh, Mike, of effective altruism without all the fancy, uh, you know, jargon surrounding it, just giving food to people who are hungry. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as, as much as the uh, the restaurant itself had a uh, quite a, a, a visible uh, space in uh, Shaughnessy Village, uh, I think as much as she could keep her name out of it, I think she's happy to do too. So it's, uh, you, can, you, you know that she's doing it for the right reason. Now, Nilufar did have some issues. Uh, they had a real estate issue. They, they found out from a real estate listing that their, their place was up for lease. And so they had to uh, quickly pivot a few months ago and focus on catering, opening up a, a to-go stand in Saint Laurent as well. Uh, but they were quickly forced out of their downtown location. And again, uh, an example, Mike, of um, sometimes when real estate forces hit you, there's absolutely nothing an entrepreneur entrepreneur can do uh, but find another location. Well, it's a good example of the old expression, right? When a door closes, a window opens, or something along those lines. And you know, it, it's certainly uh, she's they've her and her, <clears throat> her parents have found a way to perpetuate what they were doing, but also to perpetuate the good, you know, kind of uh, off the uh, uh, off the beaten path in terms of the work and the help that they were doing. So being forced out of a physical location surely did not uh, stop them from doing the good that they were doing. So uh, just because it's a good proof, you don't have to be sitting in that location to to do a, a ton of good. And as I mentioned, there is a CJD connection here because she was the, the snack stand for, for a lot of our employees. I used to run out in between of traffic shifts when I used to be a traffic reporter and, and get some falafel. And her very first customer was Mike Babbins. And many remember Mike as the, uh, the producer for the late, great Dave Fisher on our weekend morning show. He was the funny voice in the background behind Dave a lot of the time uh, on the trivia show as well. And so Mike was not only the first customer of, of Nilufar, 
uh, around the corner from the old CJD station on, on Fort Street. He also wired money in to be the very last customer from British Columbia, where he is now a successful entrepreneur himself. And I figured it'd be nice for CJD's audience to hear from Mike again and to tell the story. Uh, so here's Mike on uh, on Nilufar. Mike, tell me uh, your impressions of, of Nilufar uh, as a person and as an entrepreneur and uh, your experience as uh, the very first and last customer. Well, I, I was eating at Nilufar before she was born because uh, her, her mom said, come check out the new place we made. I didn't even know there was a daughter on the way. I didn't know the whole story that it was going to be her place. And uh, then all of a sudden uh, there was there was a little girl there and I was just watching her grow up and up. And then she was working behind the counter when she was a teenager and then she was in charge. And then she just did all these amazing things uh, with Nilufar. N number one, just keeping the place open just to keep the students and and the not well off with a place to eat was just above and beyond what what many many people would do she went out of her way to make sure people could continue to eat and and we all know it wasn't where the big money was coming up from she's making a lot more money um, with the falafel royale with the stuff to the grocery store so she was doing that as a labor of love for the community and and just because she's such a great person and i'll always love you for that um, as an entrepreneur she took this place that just made falafel. She added all these things to the menu. She made it a Montreal phenomenon, a, a, a must-visit place. And, and now it's continuing uh, in all the grocery stores. I, I'm still waiting uh, for cross-Canada delivery uh, so that we could get a proper falafel here in Vancouver where I have to pay $12 for a pita. Thank you very much. Uh, but aside from that, everything is awesome. And I want Milu to continue. And I want the 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 business to grow and as mentioned expand to vancouver mike it's great to hear from you thanks for joining us thanks for having me dan so there's the there's the the, the ultimate testimonial for nilufar i'm uh I, i'm i'm going to say that by the time that airs and uh she listens to this uh, w she may have a few tears in her eyes yeah, there's not going to be a dry eye in the house after this show she's really a special person nilufar al-shubaji joins us Moving on to some current events. And Mike, we've been talking a lot about banking in the past few weeks. Uh, all the American banks experiencing some issues related to crypto, AI, and some investment. Crazy Swiss uh, now got swallowed up. I mean, a lot of movement in the banking sector. Is this a sign that as the signatories of this, this large uh, AI declaration uh, wrote, Elon Musk, others, is maybe a pause necessary, uh, a pause to recalibrate, to perhaps give governments around the world the chance to catch up on regulation and to make sure that we aren't relying too heavily on AI to our own detriment? Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating question. About 10 days ago, uh, billionaire Andre Estefes, who was the co-founder and chairman of Brazil's Banco BTG, um, made a statement that I'm sure upset many, uh, many, many, many people in the sense that uh, it's very basic asset liability manage management that any junior analyst working in a bank in Chile, Brazil or Colombia or any other country that presents a little more volatility would know. He's basically calling a gross mismanagement of interest rate mismatch. So it's interesting because, you know, I bring that up because, you know, we live in North America. We kind of take for granted uh, that we have everything under control, that we're looking at things rationally. Um, and I don't know where that um, management lies uh, anymore between using logic from a human perspective and how much of this is just, you know, it, it, 
technology-based, uh, you know, I think if you if you run through a management of asset and debt uh, on a balance sheet into a uh, computer uh, and you don't set your variables right, you're going to set certain things off. And the moment we get an interest rate hike like we have, all of a sudden things shift. Well, if we're not managing that and looking at that and relying that everything's getting picked up, you know, where are we going in, in this whole discussion of AI and how far? I mean, AI is only as good as the information it gathers over time. Uh, and uh, from a human perspective, I, I, you know, I don't think we can replace judgment. I don't think we should be replacing judgment. And I don't think we will be replacing judgment anytime soon. Uh, but it means we have to stop being complacent and just assuming that everything that gets spit out at us from a technological standpoint is 100% right. Um, you know, we saw that we talked about this a few weeks ago about how, you know, once there was a run on the bank, it's no longer, you know, bring your wheelbarrow to collect your money. The uh, $43 billion that moved around S uh, SVB did so in the first 24 hours and like 70% of that in the first hour itself. It's a whole new world. And technology is definitely driving it. And I'm not saying that we should not be using it properly. Um, but I still think there needs to be a little bit of logic. And you're right. I think the governments need to start catching up to how they're going to address it. And I think if you take it one step further, that's a big problem right now with cryptocurrency is nobody is caught up. None of the governments have been able to deal with what does this look like uh, from a control perspective? How do we tax it? Where do we go? So we can't let tech drive everything. Uh, you still need a few of us with a few brains in order to, uh, to keep things going. From the communication standpoint, uh, on our website at TNKR, in the recent weeks, we put a, a little logo uh, referencing the human in the loop principle, which means that we don't do any task. Um, and and this, these days, translation is automated. Even drafting blogs is largely automated these days for a lot of companies, not for us. Um, but uh, if you don't have a human in the loop supervising every process, there's a problem. And the recent stuff we've seen on ChatGPT4 is super interesting because obviously it's a great tool for, that has a, an amazing amount of power, but it also has to give you the, a result, right? Its job is to give you an answer. It doesn't have to be the right answer or the best answer, but it's going to give you an answer with a high degree of confidence, very well organized. And if it's the wrong answer or even a partially wrong answer, it can take you down a road that you won't even predict. So it, it can save time, but you absolutely have to check up on absolutely on everything that an AI does, whether it's translation, drafting, uh, repairing code, everything requires a human in the loop in, in my opinion. I agree. I think, you know, you ask the right question to the wrong person, you, you're you going to get the wrong answer. You ask the wrong the wrong question to the right person, you might get the wrong answer. I mean, the, the, the whole exercise here is about judgment and some kind of understanding. And yes, at some point, uh, I guess the, uh, the bigger the AI base builds, uh, the, the more people are going to contend that judgment is, in, is intrinsically found within uh, all of the research that, that's being done. I'm not so sure yet. I, I, I'm, let's let let's just say I guess maybe I'm happy. I'm 55 and not 25, so I know at least I can use my brain for another 20 years before this takes over. And if you have a really good bot, uh, before we break, a reminder that BDO is calling all tech entrepreneurs to apply for BDO's VC Pitch Day. Now that gives selected emerging and scaling tech companies the exclusive shot to pitch their business to the incredible venture capital investors uh, BDO puts together in May 2023. So visit go.bdo bdo.ca slash VC day for details. That's go.bdo.ca slash VC day. And best of luck to the tech entrepreneurs there. And Mike, don't want to get your thoughts on the federal budget. So uh, I don't, I, I'm not political on the show, of course, uh, it's a different space. I just want to be entrepreneurial and focus on 
inspiration here. But as I was saying on CJD in the past couple of weeks, the only thing I can say, I think what, what a lot of people have observed is that this does seem like an election budget and very targeted uh, towards a certain, uh, I suppose, retail clientele. Most definitely. I mean, uh, let's face it, they're dealing with a minority position uh, in government and any minority government rarely goes past two years. Uh, you know, they struck a deal with the NDP uh, and me Singh uh, early on after the last election, but that can only go so far. Um, you know, Trudeau and his team have certainly, uh, you know, are, are in charge. And I think this budget was an attempt to try and exert some more control. And it was definitely in a position to try and uh, set the tone for what will likely be, uh, I'm guessing, a budget in the fall, because just what we need is one more election right now. So a lot of pundits on CJD were on various uh, uh, sides of this question. And so I guess we're both on election budget side. Oh, yeah. I, I you know, I, you know, the retail, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I don't think there's really a lot in this that, that addresses uh, the corporate uh, the corporate issues that that really need to be addressed right now. Um, you know, and, and I think uh, I think Prime Minister Trudeau is, is, is looking at this going, there's really not that much out there for, for to compete against me from an election standpoint. So uh, I think I'm going to do whatever I can to uh, to get as many of the retail votes as possible. And we'll we'll try our hand to, you know, to lock in another four years as uh, uh, as control. And, and you know, look, as, as we've known uh, historically since Confederation, uh, the liberals have had the majority of, uh, of time in power. So they certainly know how to play that game very well. And the other interesting thing to warn for businesses who do interact with government, maybe they get subsidies or uh, have various programs uh, involved with the federal government, well, those things might be slowed, slowed down in the fall or have, uh, have uncertainty around them. So that's important too, to be aware of as well. Yeah, certainly when we move into any uh, any any kind of uh, election mode, uh, you know, there there are certain certain things that kind of go on the back burner while everybody needs to get their face and their uh, their agenda out. Uh, business as usual doesn't usually happen within the election. So, you know, from a Canadian standpoint, we can say, hey, at least we don't go into a two year cycle uh, like the Americans do when it comes time to uh, vote in the next president. Uh, however, if you keep having an election every two years, you pretty much always feel like you're in it anyways. And let's get right to our guest, really one of the falafel queens of Montreal. Her name is Nilufar Al-Shubaji. She's the owner of the restaurant and catering business, Nilufar. Welcome to CJD, Nilufar. Welcome back, I should say. Yeah, thank you. I'm honored to be here. And first, the easiest question for those that don't know, what is Nilufar? Uh, Nilufar is a restaurant that was opened in 1994 in the heart of downtown. It was open to be able to provide healthy food, at a price point that everybody can afford, and just a real safe space in the heart of the city where I think we really have always needed one. Uh, from there, we've also always done a lot of catering for the universities and for uh, different businesses around. And in the last few months, we have converted to mostly catering. So the conversion to catering, uh, while I think it's probably a really good idea, might not have been totally of your own doing, right, at the end of the day. I mean, for some of our listeners who happen to follow, note that uh, there were some dis some issues with the landlord in there. So maybe walk us through a little bit what that, what that means. Uh, one day in the beginning of November, after being at the restaurant for almost 30 years, I woke up to a text message from a friend asking me if there was something I wanted to talk about with the business. 
I thought that was really strange. And when I looked into it, I saw that they were referring to an ad that was put up to lease the restaurant, which uh, I was totally blindsided by. It wasn't coming from me. It had come from the landlords. So uh, basically, they cut our time there really short. So it begs the question, was the lease up and they just decided to move forward without consulting you? or? So we've had a month-to-month lease for the last 15 years. And uh, even during COVID and during all the rough times where people were unable to pay their rent and the businesses were closed, we were still able to maintain. We paid our rent. Uh, we did everything on time. And that was the last time we really spoke with the landlord was around 2020 or 2021. So we had no idea that it was happening or anything like that. We wanted to talk to you, Nilu, because you're someone that's familiar to uh, the staff here at CJAD. You used to be around the corner from Ford Street, where our studios were. And uh, I remember our, our our old friend Mike Babbins from the, the Weekend Morning Show was actually your very first customer and your very last customer. Tell me about the connection to media and how you've used uh, some of those media connections to, to further your marketing. You know, it wasn't really me that used the connections. It's the falafel. I feel like our falafel is so good. It connects everybody all over the city. I can just stand in front of somebody and give them a falafel sandwich and they just want to know more about it and about us. And, you know, food really speaks to people. And uh, the way to a lot of people is through their stomachs. And Mike is one of those people. Mike loves food and he was vegetarian. So he would come on. My mom would always say that he would come on his like three minute breaks, run in, get two falafel sandwiches and run back. So a lot of people were like that. So we're very much so appreciated by the people in media. And uh, he was our very first customer. And when he knew we were closing, he was messaging us a lot and making sure, you know, that we were okay with everything and that we were making the right decision. He was really involved in making sure that we were all okay. And in the end, he even asked if he could e-transfer me money to be the last transaction that we did at the restaurant. And that was so beautiful to me. And I never cried while pressing a transaction, but this time I definitely did. I should, I should also mention when I was a traffic reporter too, that's exactly what I would do in between shifts. I would run over to Nilufar, get a snack. Uh, you provided such delicious, affordable meals to everyone. We we all were obsessed with you, Nilu, and we, we were we were... Also troubled to see, you know, that, that that you had to make a quick exit, but then you really decided to double down on the catering business. Tell me about that that time in November when you're pivoting, and and this this essentially is a is a pretty important pivot for you guys. You still have a storefront in Ville Saint Laurent, but getting out of the downtown core and pivoting to catering, what have been some of the challenges with that pivot? I think the challenge really motivated me to move quickly, and you know, all I had to do really was put up a a status on social media saying, hey, we didn't know about this because the way we have our connection to our customers, I didn't want people to think we were just leaving in the middle of the night or business wasn't good, doing good. So we were just closing and we were just taking off. I really wanted people to know what the situation was. I wanted people to know that it wasn't our choice and that we wouldn't be leaving them, you know, so to speak, in the cold, just like that. So I think that writing that status, it motivated me to see how much people wanted the food still and that there was a need for the food. And I wasn't just going to close up shop and open a t-shirt stand or something. I really wanted to stick with what I was already doing. And I wanted to see and talk to the people that I was already talking to. So I decided that I was going to go full throttle with the catering and 
All I really had to do was put up a Facebook status and the orders keep coming in. It's a few months later and we are so happy with how it's doing. So Neil, the the catering component was there prior to. It was obviously a much smaller piece of the business. So you weren't starting from scratch on a catering site, but obviously the business model and the change of everything here, what, what, what did you significantly have to change the moment you put, unfortunately put the key in the door on the restaurant to move into a full-time catering gig? Well, we had to now fully having to be dealing with volume uh, instead of just, you know, like, having pre-orders for catering because people would come to the restaurant, give me like a week notice. Now I'm getting a lot of people that, uh, you know, 24 hour notice for a pretty big order. So I have to make sure that I have all the stock, the, you know, just the platters, the catering, uh, the food that comes with it. So that was more the major adjustment and dealing with um, more when people would come to the restaurant, they would see what they wanted and choose what they wanted off the menu I feel like when it comes to catering and when people are giving more money and asking for significantly bigger orders, they want more service. They want more one-on-one time. So I, that led me to do a lot of customizations on menus, which does take some time. So shifts like that were definitely uh, very noticeable Like with my time, whereas I would just serve somebody two falafel, see you later. And now this is, here's a three-menu proposal. This is what I think your guests would like. and Honestly, I, I love doing that, so I'm really happy about it. So as much as the website may have been part of the marketing before, for those people that didn't know you, um, for for now, I guess it, it has a much bigger role in, in what you're doing from a marketing campaign and in terms of reaching out to people. Are you taking orders online? Are you working through a, or are you still doing it, shall we call it the old-fashioned way, on a phone call or, uh, or some kind of communication? Um, I'm open to any type of communication. But for me, social media is what really works. I get orders from LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook. So that's huge for me because that's five times the audience. It's not all the same people following me on all different um, social media outlets. It's all different people. So it's like five times the marketing. So that's where uh, I get my most audience is in social media. I get a lot of orders directly in the direct messages and then we go to email for the more professionally invoicing and stuff like that. But I deal with clients directly and I try to make it as casual as possible. A lot of people, you know, they get, you know, some type of like anxiety or something when they have to, they don't know anything about the food, but all of a sudden they've been given the task of feeding 500 people and they don't know what to do. That's when my expertise comes in. And to be able to just talk to people, call me online, like, hey, what's up? You know, throw little emojis here and there. It makes the whole situation a lot calmer. It's a lot more personable, and it's really good. Walking into a store, somebody orders, you're providing your cooking there. Now you've got five, six modes of communication coming at you. How are you managing? How are you managing to, to, to be able to accept all of these orders coming in from so many different locations? And, and I know that doesn't sound daunting, but for anybody who's sitting in the position you are, that's got to be a lot of volume from a lot of sources. It is, but I love what I do, so it doesn't really feel like work. And the people that are emailing me, like, they'll be people that I already know or people that I've already dealt with. So it's people that I would like to hear from anyway. So it doesn't really feel like a task. I love that they're reaching out and I love that they missed the food and that they want to have the food and they're calling us for their next event. So, you know, they say when you do something you love, it doesn't really feel like work. It does feel like work. Obviously, if you do put in your 100%, it's always going to feel a little bit like work. 
but it's so much easier when you love the people you're dealing with and you love what you're doing. The falafel queen, pretty much, I think, Montreal at this point. Uh, I think I can call it falafel queen. And uh, they used to have a restaurant uh, in the Shaughnessy Village near our old studios on Fort Street. And that's how I met uh, Nilufar so many years ago. And one of the great stories, I think the subplots here, Mike, is that Nilufar and her family have been really so dedicated to providing um, good quality food at, I would say, absurdly discounted prices. I mean, Nilufar, your prices have been, from what I've seen, like in recent years, I mean, just crazy accessible. And the, the effort that you guys must put in to keep those prices low is really admirable. But are you making money? Are you guys making enough money? I mean, you used to come in and say, are you sure? Is this, can, can, can I pay more for this? <laughs> <laughs> I love when people do that. And I always accept more money. And t- tell me about the pricing and, and the Falafel at Ford uh, program you used to do as well. Um, I think why keep such good food a secret? Why have a restaurant if you can't feed so many people? I love the fact that mostly everybody can afford what we have and those who can't. We've always given food to people who needed it. You know, people are like, oh, for homeless people. And it's not only homeless people that need food. There's also people that go on bad run on bad times that they lose their jobs or they've just paid all their money to their rent and to their, you know, their their regular bill that they're not able to afford to eat every day. And I've had plenty of people come and be like, hey, Nilu, like I got paid Thursday. I haven't eaten for two days. Is there anything you can do? So I wanted to kind of avoid those conversations and not have people have to come in and ask me, you know, it it takes a lot of courage to do that. So for some people, it's hard to say, you know, I don't have the money to eat. So I put up a falafel at forward board. I asked for donations from a few people just to get those numbers going. So what people would do is that they would prepay for a falafel sandwich for somebody else. So the next person that comes in that needs it, they would just be like, hey, I'm going to take two uh, falafels off the board. And then we would just lower the number. So it didn't have to have those conversations where they have to explain to me their life or they have to explain to me. Nobody has to explain to me that they have to eat every day. That's just something I know. And I wanted to stop those conversations and stop the shame in it. We all need people all the time. And if I could be that person for somebody, then that's a huge, huge blessing to me. So Nilo, you guys uh, on St. Catherine were a couple blocks away from uh, a location where the federal government recently announced a 30 plus million dollar facility to deal with some of our most vulnerable citizens who are on the streets and in the Shaughnessy Village and going through a really rough time. There's something about social work that's inescapable about the job that you had there, about the role that you had. Uh, Tell me about some of the interactions you had with people in distress and what advice you would give to other entrepreneurs who are in neighborhoods that are vulnerable. Um, I would think uh, wear your heart on your sleeve more. Not everything is about business. I mean, it is important to be successful, but how you become successful is important. The journey to get there is important. And, you know, like just like me, maybe I didn't charge a lot for my food. I've been on every radio station. I've been on every, you know, TV news broadcasting show. And so I think that people should really take into account that, Not everybody can eat every day. And a lot of people do need help, especially after COVID. I saw a big difference in addiction, in the homelessness, in people that, you know, just students and people that were having trouble leaving their house every day to be able to work, to be able to have money. And even though a lot of people did get served in that, having to pay that stuff back became a huge responsibility that a lot of people couldn't take on. And I think that 
we just have to be more mindful that not everybody's in a good position and that a lot of people do need help. And if you can offer the help or if you can refer people the help, then do it. When it comes to mental illness and stuff like that, I've had people come and tell me, you know, suicidal um, tendencies, or they would be telling me things that, you know, I, I, I would start smelling alcohol on their breath earlier in the day. I would notice they were partying more. You know, I would take them aside and be like, hey, what's up? You know, I knew my customers enough to know this isn't how they usually dress. It's not how they usually talk. They're hanging with different people. And people would come and talk to me about things. But when it came to serious things like suicide and stuff like that, we were a block away from the CLSC and I would tell them to go there. And people have gone there and they have gotten help. And I mean, I, I really just, I, I did what I could. And I think a lot more people need to not look at everything from a business standpoint and to really understand that we are just people and everybody falls on rough times and do what you can, you know, don't, don't just do what you can. So how are you filling that void? I mean, you're not downtown, you're not in the center, in the heart of what's going on. I mean, clearly there's a passion and a tone in your voice that goes way beyond food and way beyond uh, running a business here. There's a, there's a whole community effect to what you're doing. I mean, this must, this whole move to catering must have been a massive hit to, to you and your parents. It was, and it would have been more if I didn't have access to so many people from social media. I know these people enough to be able to message them and be like, hey, are you okay? You know, is everything going well? And there's also community fridges. There's one that I like to donate a lot to. It's uh, in Place St. Henry. So I'll just go there randomly and drop food off there. And uh, I will still do my part in donating. And um, I'm also trying to think up some type of way to have some type of drop-off spot where I would go and drop off just like, you know, 50 falafel sandwiches to people who would need it. Um, I have a lot of options, you know, when there's a will, there's a way. When there's a will, there's a way. That is really, really true. And I don't think anything or anyone can really stop me. So I'm not nervous about, you know, not being able to help people. I think I'll always be able to help people till the day I die which is hopefully in a long time. You know, while, while you're front and center, they can come to you. Now you have to make, an, so let's call it an additional effort, right, in order to get food to them or, or like you said, come up with an idea. What do you need from a partnering perspective? Is there something out there that, that, that could help you get to more people on a larger scale, on a quicker basis or on a regular basis? So one thing is, like I said about the flashlight forward, I don't like to really have those conversations with people because I don't want the whole thank you. Oh my God, you're so amazing. That I, I, I never liked that stuff. So the community fridges, the anonymity of that, I love. So a few years ago, I was thinking up something where basically like on every few street corners, there would be some type of pantry, some type of fridge where people would go and get food with, you know, labels with what the dates would have, you know, like, let's say there was a muffin, you just say April 1st, 2000. So let's say I haven't eaten in four days and the muffin was made four days ago. I have the choice of if I want to eat it, how hungry I am, what the situation is. That needs to be done, especially downtown. It's incredible the amount of people that go hungry. You would never know. Their shoes are nice. They look good. They have their cell phones, but they haven't been paid in two weeks. Their bosses haven't paid them. Their, their, their office closed without warning. 
So I wish there was something we could do where it's not me going frontline and standing being like, oh, here, you know, here's free food from me. I wish it was something that was more anonymous, that I could, you know, build pantries all over the city or get fridges all over the city. Right now, the only there's only about three that I know of. That's not enough. There are so many families where there's not enough money at the food bank. There's not enough food at the food bank. There's not enough people that have the money. You know, I see people all the line, uh, all the time on Facebook. I'm on mutual aid uh, groups. I see people all the time that are like, yeah, the food bank has food for me. I can't get there. I can't afford to get on the bus. I don't have bus tickets. Can you eat transit? So there's so many obstacles in the way of getting food. And we're not a third world country. We have to do better. There's, there's no excuse for this. It, it's interesting in the, the way you describe it because we have made efforts in, in many areas and whether that is healthcare, uh, where somebody's battling cancer, we'll, we'll help them move around town, we'll help to get to an appointment, but we still kind of ignore and, and I don't know if it's sweep under the rug, a lot of the, the homeless, uh, lack of food and or mental illness associated with all of this. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it, there's still a lot of work ahead of us. How has this affected your parents? I mean, they started this store. This was front and front and center. I mean, obviously, they must have the same passion and intensity that you have for what's going on. Has has this had a negative effect on them, or is this giving them just a different opportunity to look at the world and and the way they do things? Well, my parents are the best people I've ever met. To be honest, I think they've taught me uh, how to be how I am, and everything that people say to compliment me, I could say the same thing about my parents. So we owe all that to them. Um, my mom worked at the restaurant for 30 years. So it was like her child and she definitely missed it. But I mean, the way it happened, you know, like I told everybody, if we had to close because people didn't like the food anymore, that would be heart-wrenching. You know, if we closed because people didn't like us anymore or because, you know, the quality went down, the price, that would literally, you know, that would really hurt. But the way it went down, I think, you know, we were able to leave with, you know, our dignity, with our work still appreciated. And I think that made things a lot easier. On top of it, um, in 2016, I started distributing the falafel in stores. So we sell falafel royale in grocery stores. Uh, and this is actually where we took the restaurant. Now we're in the same uh, location where we do make the falafels. We have a huge kitchen here for that. So we integrated both of them together. We're in about 50 grocery stores. So I'm still able to give people affordable vegan food. That's, you know, there's a lot of people have a lot of allergies. And if you're vegan and gluten-free, People will charge you $10 for a piece of bread where you can get a box of falafel with all this protein, all this fiber, really healthy, all natural stuff. And we're still, you know, feeding off that energy and off the fact that we can do that still. And continuing a little longer now for our podcast audience, Nilou Far, and uh, let's talk about falafel royale. So first, uh, for caterers, cater catering situations, uh, where can people get in touch uh, with uh, Nilofar for uh, their their big falafel orders. Um, order at nilofarmtl.com is where we take all the orders for the email uh, email orders. We also have a phone number that's online that you can reach us through. Also, all our social media. We're very, very active on social media. So we always get the uh, message right away. Your parents uh, named the restaurant after you, right? Tell me about right. their background, how they started the restaurant, 
and uh, and what inspired them to to cook for for the neighborhood, the Shaughnessy Village? Um, my parents came to Canada in 1989. My dad opened a fruit store downtown, about three stores down from Nilafar, and it was called Fruitery Youngs. And from there, my mother started the restaurant. And that opened on Halloween night, 1994. I was there and I cried the whole day, the whole night, because I just wanted to go trick-or-treating. And I couldn't imagine that I was sitting in a restaurant that I didn't know anything of when I could be getting bags and bags of candy. And I didn't know how much this restaurant would mean to me just uh, three decades later. So they were really interested in feeding people. You know, there wasn't a lot of Middle Eastern options. And people, when they think about fast food, they think burgers, they think fries. They weren't thinking falafel sandwiches at that time. That was something the city really needed, healthy food that was also quick and also affordable. So that's how Nilafar was really born. Uh, it is named after me, and that's always been really... Uh, can't find the word. Influential? Yes, it's been influential. <laughs> Having a restaurant named after me is really influential. My brother's name is Amir, so we didn't have that much option. <laughs> so only the two of us, but I'll still take the win. And um, basically, yeah, that's... I think you've come a long way since crying for candy back in the 1994. Just listening to you talk is inspiring me. I mean, this whole effort and trying to feed certain communities and, 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 and you know, people that haven't eaten in a long time. Uh, we take, uh, we take, you know, uh, we take lack of food as, as, as something that happens to somebody else, right? It's never us. I mean, you've basically created in, in the way you're working your own foundation through whatever, whatever work you're doing, right? Instead of setting up a separate foundation, you're doing it on a daily basis through all of this. Do you find yourself running around town? I mean, is, is, is there a, I mean, obviously with catering, you're, uh, not everything is picked up, I guess. You're dropping off some of the food. Now you're dropping off food at, at food banks and shelters. Like, do you sleep? Do you just run around town constantly? I have a lot of energy, and I'm happy that my energy is going into something good, you know, rather than shopping, or I don't know what else I could be doing that, uh, you know, this for me is meaningful and it helps me sleep at night. So why not? And I also have a, a team. It's, it's, you're nothing without your team. I have everybody helping me. I have friends that call me, be like, Hey, I didn't go to work today. Do you need anything? I can call 10 people right now and be like, can you come help me in the kitchen? And they'll come. And just having that support behind you, you could do anything. I feel invincible with like that. So where are you cooking from? I mean, when you had the store going, obviously you were cooking at the store. Um, how do things change in terms of environment to cook? And, and, and what was the biggest, uh, I guess, the biggest change from a workspace environment for you to go full catering? The biggest, we have a big, beautiful kitchen here where we make the falafel royale. So that's beautiful. Really happy about that. But the conversations, the meaningful there's like thousands of conversations that we would have with people, we miss that. We definitely miss our people. We definitely miss seeing the same people every day. And we were built on regulars. So we would have people come in and be like, hey, Nilu, you're literally my fridge. I know it's my third time here today, but uh, just give me the food. Just You don't have to tell people. <laughs> just I know I'm here a lot, but I love your food. And so that part we'll miss. That part I think we'll always miss. But again, like with social media, I feel like we're so accessible 
and people, I, I can reach out to anybody myself as well. And I really love that. And we'll have the one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs. I mean, I don't know how we're going to cram in more inspiration from Nilofar Al-Shabaji, Mike, but uh, she's going to cram in one more piece of uh, inspiring advice for everyone. And it's a good one. It's coming up. So stay tuned for that. But first, let's get to our expert, Natalie Perkhart, Manager of HR Consulting at BDO Canada. Welcome back, Natalie. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me today. No problem. And Mike, uh, no business is too small to lay that foundation for, for HR. Yeah, no kidding. You know, it's it's a traditional problem that a lot of startups and you, and a lot of young companies or smaller companies, you know, spend their time thinking HR is a peripheral afterthought. And and I think part of this discussion, Natalie, really is to be at what point would you say that a small uh, or medium enterprise that started up should start thinking about building a proper HR foundation. I mean, you know, the your receptionist who is also your bookkeeper shouldn't also be your HR uh, person, right? Um, so I would say as soon as you have employees, so that could be as little as one employee, you should start thinking about what are your HR practices and what do you want to put in place? Not every uh, business will have the same needs, but there should be something there to provide clarity and support to your employees. So what's an HR foundation? I mean, it sounds really nice to say, hey, we're going to build a base for our HR. But but what do you mean when you refer to uh, an HR foundation and what are some of the elements and and, and why? So, I mean, an HR foundation can look different based on the organization or the size of the organization, but it really is uh, the few things that put a little bit of structure on the HR front and the employee support front. Um, so key elements can be starting normally with a policy manual or some policies in place to provide clarity and understanding of kind of what is, uh, what are the roles, what are accessible um you know, benefits and whatnot to the employee, how do things work, uh, what are the procedures. Um, we like to start with three procedures, uh, an onboarding, a recruitment, and an offboarding procedure. That way there's always a constant support through the employee life cycle. Um, often SMEs will like to do a compensation review. That way they know, are they, you know, market competitive? What are they paying? Um, what are their competitors paying? and a performance evaluation to provide constant feedback. Like I said, depending on the size and maybe sometimes the industry as well as the organization, these things can vary. There might be some elements that are more important than others, but you should definitely start with the foundation of having the policies in place and proper procedures. So I'm going to go back to my question of why, because I'm going to look at this from an employer standard or perspective. You know, I mean, it sounds like this is a benefit to my employees. There's no doubt I'm creating work processes. I'm creating uh, evaluation processes. What are some of the advantages to the employer of, of setting up a key foundation, HR foundation? So I'm going to go back to clarity. Clarity is really important because as soon as you have a disconnect between what somebody expects and what somebody else expects, then we have friction and conflicts that can arise. Um, also, as we know, turnover is really expensive. So when we have conflicts, we have more you know, risk for turnover. Um, when we have confusion or lack of clarity, we have more risk for turnover. And, you know, the last thing we want to do is just to continually having to be in training and um, rehiring new team members and retraining them and regoing through these processes. Uh, when there's clarity, uh, transparency, the functioning is always smoother. 
uh, the functioning is also faster and more efficient. So HR, in, in many cases, people feel, and, and I've spoken to entrepreneurs over the years, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can do this myself. I mean, a lot of this is the type of thing where building an HR uh, team may not be cost effective. So in many cases, you might look at outsourcing and you might look at using consulting services. So what are some of the benefits of using consulting services to build an HR foundation? So actually using consulting services is really beneficial, especially in the small, medium-sized enterprise space, uh, because you may not want a full-time HR person. And even if you are at the size that you do want a full-time HR person, you know, one person doesn't necessarily have the expertise in doing everything. So when you go with a consulting a consultant, first of all, it's, you know, it's not our first rodeo. Uh, we know exactly what we're doing. We know the right questions to ask and we can build procedures and we can build policy very, very quickly and we can help implement that. Um, you also have an array of subsidies that you can use. So actually resource-wise, it ends up being less expensive than having to pay a resource to do it on your team. And you get a professional service that's really well integrated. Um, most consultants will even support you through the process of, you know, getting your subsidies or giving you the right information or link you up with somebody that can support you through that. So really, uh, when you don't have an, an HR uh, department in place, you can still have those processes, you can still do it for in a cost effective way, and uh, you can provide that support uh, going forward to your team members. Natalie Porkhart, Manager HR Consulting at BDO Canada. Thanks very much, Natalie. Thank you. And as we get to the end of our broadcast, let's turn to our entrepreneur, Nilufar Al-Shabaji from Nilufar Restaurant and Catering, Falafel Queen of Montreal, and ask her for her one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs. Nilu, what do you think? So my one piece of advice for everybody listening today is not to take advice from everybody. There are some people that don't have the same goals in mind as you do. There are some people that will come and have no business experience and will try to be spitballing ideas with you where, you know, especially when you are younger, people think that they can come and just say whatever they want for you and you should take their advice because they're older and they're wiser. Even if they are successful, it's not always the best route to go. I had somebody come to the restaurant once. He sat there and he ate all his food and talked. At the end of the meal, he came up and he said, you know what? I'm a big marketing exec and the food is amazing. The service is amazing. I love the ambiance. But what is this name? You have to change this name. It is one of the worst names I've ever heard. And this will never work in the long run. He doesn't know we were there for 20 years. He doesn't know he's talked to the person whose name it is. So I'm just there like, uh-huh, okay, okay. Not wanting to be rude. Not wanting to extend the conversation. Because again, I'm not going to take his advice. So I think... That is a huge piece of advice. When I first started, I was like, oh, no, no, he has a restaurant. Oh, that person has a distribution company. They seem really successful. They drive a nice car. I should listen to them. No, follow your instincts, follow your heart, choose your select people that you do want to take your advice from, go from there. Not everybody has the right things to say. Not everybody has the right advice. And you just don't listen to any, anybody for any reason. Mike, expert advice, especially important when you're running a very complicated business, when you're devoting so much of your time to good causes. Uh, Nilu has no time for nonsense. 
Totally agree, and, and and this is a perfect example. You know, we've time and again discussed the new calculations or how do we determine profitability and success. Well, here's a great example of what is not bottom line driven success, but a very very influential individual within the community, who's uh, who's kind of bolstering our, uh, our our new definition of profitability. And even though it's not numbers, uh, it is still significantly impactful. So uh, I'm, you know, I, I'm a little humbled. What do I tell you? Nilafar, thanks so much for joining us. We've been doing this show for 15 years. I, I don't think I've ever said this to a guest, but I absolutely love you. I think you're a wonderful human being. I love you too. so lucky to have you in this I'm community. really, really honored to be here. I have to say that this is, I really am, but this is huge for me. And thank you so much. Take care. We'll talk soon. For sure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal as a podcast on iHeartRadio, iTunes, or your favorite platform. And you can log on to the website, inspiringentrepreneursmtl.com, for hundreds of local entrepreneur profiles from the last 15 years. See you back here next week, Mike. This has been a production of TNKR Media. Good talk.